you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get into Genesis chapter 26, Isaac and Abimelech. And so um, Abraham, verse tw- chapter 26, verse 1, Therefore, excuse me, there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abram. And, Isaac's, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar, And then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For you, for to your descendants, you and your descendants, I give all the lands and will perform the oath which I have swore to your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all of the land, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed." Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And so here we have Isaac. Abraham um, has, has died and, and been buried in Machpelah with his wife. And, and Isaac now is the, the new patriarch. And he's, he's taking over. And he's, um, it's so funny because he's going to repeat the exact same things. You're almost going to think that we're reading Genesis 12 again and the same exact thing that Abraham did. And, and here, Isaac, we have this... This famine in the land. And God tells him, even though there's famine, don't go to Egypt. And so what does Isaac do? He goes right to the border of Egypt to a place called Gerar, right on the the border of Egypt. He didn't go in, but he went as far as he could go to the edge of what God told him to do without going in. And so that's a dangerous place. In that place, we saw, we've already learned, we saw the lesson of Lot and his family and how Lot went and did the same thing. And he went right to the edge of Sodom and Gomorrah. And over time, Lot eventually got closer and closer to Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the end, Lot barely narrowly escaped with his life. But unfortunately, his kids did not because of him living on the edge. And so here, Isaac, he he goes to the edge of um, there and he, he ends up in Gerar. You know, the interesting thing about Isaac is that you guys are looking at me funny. Am I saying something wrong? <laughs> the interesting thing about Isaac is that um, Isaac, you know, there's, there's not a ton of, you know, chapters and verses about Isaac and, and Isaac yet is, he's one of the patriarchs, right? Of the Jewish faith to this day, my, one of my favorite names for God in the Bible that God goes by or calls himself by is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, you know, but, but really when you, you look at the life of Isaac, you, you don't, have a lot. I mean, you get very, very little in the book of Genesis about Isaac. We're going to get this part, right? He showed up as a boy, but didn't say a word or nothing other than the story was about Abraham in 22, when Abraham brought Isaac up onto the mountain and was going to crucify him there. Abraham's life, tons, 14 chapters of, of, of information regarding and detailing the life of Abraham. But as we get here to Isaac, as the story now shifts, as we go through the patriarchs, we're, we're not going to get a ton, um, of, of information about Isaac, you know, and we get, we're going to get a lot about his, his son as the story is going to shift. It goes from Abraham to Isaac, very briefly in Isaac. And then we're going to shift to Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel and, and Jacob's 12 sons. And then lots of, lots of stuff about Jacob in his life, but, but not a ton of stuff about Isaac. And what we do get, unfortunately about Isaac and what's recorded in the Bible is, you know, not, not a ton of victories, you know, not a ton of, um, 
great, wonderful things that are recorded about Isaac in his life. And, and so, you know, he, he tells him, don't go down there. God says, don't go down to Egypt. I'm going to bless you. The interesting thing is that God says here, we, we read through it, but um, looking for the word because. Verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge. And so he's going to bless you because of a promise that he made to Abraham. And so we, we talked about and we kind of hammered it out when we got through that point. But the promise of God to Abraham was um, unconditional. There was, it was, God just said he was going to do it. As a matter of fact, you guys remember, Isaac, Abraham was told to cut the bull in half and God was going to meet him in the middle in this cutting covenant in this, this, this way that you cut the bull in half and two come in the middle and they make this oath and, and Isaac show, or Abraham is there and he cuts the bull and he's in the middle and the birds are coming and he's shooing the birds away and finally he just passes out and falls asleep. When he wakes up, it's all over. God showed up, did the deal. Didn't really need a, you know, Abraham because it was unconditional. God was going to do it. And so here he reminds Isaac that um, he's going to bless him because of the deal that he made with his father. And in verse 6 it says, So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Again, Gerar would have been right on the Egyptian border. He went right down to the edge and, and didn't, didn't go all the way in. Not just kind of rabbit trail. It's not a good idea, right, to live on the border of anything. You never want to live in that place where you're, you're really close to the edge. And, and there is an edge. There, there is a place where, you know, it's a dangerous place to be in your life spiritually, where you just push the envelope just far enough to where you always want to walk right on that edge. I never want to be there. I want to be as far off that edge as I can, as close to the Lord as I can, as far away from danger as I can, as far away from Egypt as I can. Egypt is a type of what in the Bible? Egypt is a type of the world. And so um, we, we studied and we hammered out the idea on Sunday, right, of what this term in the Bible, the world, means, the love of the world, all that's in the world. We, we are in this world, but not of this world. And so um, Egypt is a type of the world. And whenever you see Egypt, we don't want to go back to Egypt. We don't want to go back to the world. And so here's Isaac living on the edge. In verse 7, it says, And the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, She is my sister. Does that sound familiar? Right? And so, you know, the, the same sin that his father committed of disobedience, of a lack of faith. And it's crazy because he's in Gerar. He's the, the, the king's name is Abimelech. Abimelech is not the same Abimelech from chapter 12. Abimelech is a, is a title like Herod in the Bible. You have Herod, but you have lots of different Herods. Herod is just, you know, the title of a, of a patriarch or a king or a ruler. And so you have Pharaoh in the Bible. You have lots of different Pharaohs that have the term Pharaoh. And so Abimelech is that type of title, but it doesn't, it's not the same, probably his son or grandson of the Abimelech that Abraham would have dealt with. And so here we have Isaac repeating the same sins. You know, I've heard some people say in sections and in this place, you know, there's a, there's a section that says that the sins of the fathers are repeated unto the sons in the next generation. And that there's a curse and it's the, the curse of the fathers, the sins of the fathers. And that, you know, people who are alcoholics and now, they're, now they're, their children are alcoholics and that it's a curse that God put on generation to generation because of, of the sins of their fathers. But you got to go on. You got to read the rest of the verse. And, and yes, they're, you know, they talk about generational curses. So apart from Christ, 
There, there are things that are naturally gener- generational curses. And it's not even so much that God, you know, zaps somebody with alcoholism or a curse, but the reoccurring, the natural tendency, you know, you see your dad drinking all the time, then you're going to, you're going to, you're going to quite possible that you'll end up a drinker. If you grew up in a house where everybody smokes and every time, you know, it's in the car, it's in the house, there's, there's a higher percentage that the kids growing up in that house are going to smoke as adults, right? It's just a natural reoccurring um, thing. And, and so there's those that take that verse in the Bible that the sins of the fathers are, are, are repeated unto the children as a generational curse. And, and I think there are tendencies, you know, and some people say it's genetic and all those things. I'm genetically disposed to alcoholism or to this or that. And, and outside of Christ, you can make any argument you want. I don't care. But when you're in Christ, all those are broken. And that's not what the Bible teaches. In Christ, there's no such thing as a generational curse. In Christ, you're set free. In Christ, you are your own person. And I don't care if your dad was an alcoholic or not. You are set free in Christ. Jesus said, I've come to set captivity free. And so you, you, you have victory in Jesus Christ over these things. And, and he goes on and he says that he, mercy to the thousands. You know, your sin is one little grain of sand compared to a, a, a mile-high mountain of God's mercy and grace. And, God, and God's mercy and grace is sufficient. And, and he doesn't punish you for the sins of your parents or for the tendencies of your parents. And if you're one of those who says, yeah, I... I have this anger problem because I got from my dad and because my dad is angry and that's why I'm angry. And if, if that's an excuse to continue to be angry, that's sin in your life. That's, that's just sin. It's not biblical. It's not right. You have, you have, you're, you're sinning and you need to repent and, and you need to knock that off. Nor can you live under the umbrella, which some do. And I think this is the, the catalyst. This is the, 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 the problem is that some excuse that behavior because of something that a parent did or a grandparent did. And they continue to live that way under the guise that, you know, you'll hear that, that their parents did it. You'll hear the same thing about, you know, and it, it's funny because it's every nationality. Well, I got this temper issue because I'm Irish. I'm Italian. It's just in me. I'm Cajun or whatever, you know. And speaking of Cajun... Did I tell you guys my uncle Thibodeau and my aunt went to see the Pope today? I didn't tell you that. So my uncle, my, my aunt's really Catholic. And my uncle Thibodeau, they go to see the Pope today. And so, you know, my aunt's really excited and she's pushing her way up to the front. She's dragging my uncle and, you know, he's like, ah, he doesn't want it. And he's got a little cooler, a little barbecue grill, a bocce grill. And he's like, I'm just going to set up right here way in the back and sits on his grill and fires up some dogs on his hot dog thing. And my aunt pushes her way all the way to the front. And finally, the Pope comes out and Pope starts his speech. And he looks right at my uncle, Thibodeau, and he says, he makes the sign of the cross. And my, my aunt, she's so excited. She runs back and she says, honey, did you see the Pope? He looked right at you and he made the sign of the cross. And he said, oh, honey, he said, I know that's what it looked like, but that's not what happened. He said what he really said was, hey, you, take that barbecue grill, but what you got and get out of here. <laughs> All right. That didn't really happen. You know that. <laughs> that's, that's my Cajun humor that I got from my father. See, that's a, that's a generational blessing. That's not a generational curse. Yes. C- Cajun humor. That's, that's good stuff, man. Thibodeau and Boudreaux, those guys can go all night. So let's go to verse number seven. And the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say she is my wife, because he thought 
lest the men of the place kill him for Rebekah because she is a beautiful to behold. So again, a son repeating the same sins of his father. And, you know, there's another lesson for us as fathers, right? And we've shared this, you know, the, the things that you do, your, your kids are going to do. That's just the bottom line. You, you can, I, I grew up without a father, with a brother who was 10 years older than me, who, who kind of was a father figure in a lot of cases. He was the oldest adult male in my house. He was 10 years older than me. And so, you know, but he grew up, don't do what I do, do what I say. Don't do drugs. Don't drink. Don't do this. Don't do that. If I catch you doing that stuff, I'll beat you up and this and that. And, and, and a little fear as a younger person for some of those things to not do what he did, to do what he said. But at some point in my life, I began to do the same things that he did. And that's just the way it works, right? Do what I say only, only is good for so long. I can remember Pastor Bob, my, um, you guys know Pastor Bob, he's one of my professors. And, you know, I remember the first time when I was young and he, he said to me that he looked at his sons and he told his sons, you do what I do. And that whole concept was so foreign to me at the time, being a new Christian and being fairly young in the Lord a couple years. And, you know, that that exists somewhere. You know, I didn't grow up that way. There was not a dad or an older brother I knew in my neighborhood that could look at, you know, the next generation and say, hey, do what I do. Because it was so bad that they always said, don't do what I do. And, and, and for us as fathers to be able to look at our sons and say, if I do it, you can do it. If you don't see me doing it, you don't do it. And that, that, that's a, that, that holds us to a higher standard. And, and just knowing, again, you guys, just know that, that the, the roads that you cross, the areas that you enter into, the things in your life that you allow, your kids will do them. You know, with drinking, for example, we have a, a liberty in Christ, right? To have a, a glass of wine with, with your meal, to have a beer. The Bible says, do not be drunk. So if you get drunk and where that limit is, you know, at what point is it drunk? Is it, you know, if you got in your car to drive and you got pulled over at, what is it, 0.04, you go to jail for drunk driving? So is that, is that the standard? And I'm talking about just staying in your house. I'm talking about where is that line between having a drink and the, that, that is, is a liberty in Christ and getting drunk, which is forbidden in Christ. And so anyways, but what, one of the things you have to understand is you, you may have and you may possess the ability to not make it a tendency, to not get drunk, to not... Um, it's not a problem. You, you, can, you can enjoy a drink and it's, it's not a problem for you. It's not a problem. It's not going to, you know, you can control it. It's not, you know, you're not the guy that has one and has to have then 27. You can have one and stop. And, um, but your kids watch that. If they watch that enough, they, they may not have that same ability. It, it may become a problem in their life. And so, <clears throat> so those things are going to pass on. So in verse number eight, it says, now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Who has a King James version in here? What does it say there? Instead of showing, what does it say? Verse nine or verse eight. Sporting, sporting, sporting with his wife. I don't know what sporting is, you know, but. King James says he was sporting with her. One of the pastors I was I was listening to on this chapter, he, he was saying, oh, you know what sporting means? Oh, sporting. He was, I'm like, like he was insinuating. You know, another guy said flirting. And I'm like, that kind of makes more sense to me because, you know, if he's insinuating, he laid with her, as the Bible calls it. You know, I'm like, what, what are they doing those days? Like, Abimelech looks out his window and there it is. You know, that didn't seem right. It just don't seem right. 
So, so the word that the King James uses is sporting. This one here says that he was showing endearment, which I think is kind of more accurate, that he was flirting. Maybe, maybe you know, something enough. It was enough that um, Abimelech realized that he was lying. That was not his, his sister. That was his wife. And in verse 9, it says, Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife. So how would you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. Now, one of, one of the things about Isaac, a couple of things we need to learn about Isaac. We're going to see in, in, in the other next part of this chapter, the last part of this chapter is, oh, well, because it's all about water. It's all about wells. And, and so, but we're going to see two kind of characteristic traits in Isaac in the first part of, of this chapter and the last part. And they're, they're both very similar. But one of the things that I, I would say is a plus as we study through Isaac's life and Again, you know, these, these people are all in heaven, right? So there, there is a little bit of that fear when you talk too bad about them. That when you show up to heaven, you know, they're going to punch you in the eye about something you, you, yeah, you said about them when they were in heaven, you know. But again, that's why, that, that's why God has them here, right? That's, that's the purpose of it is that, you know, we, we, we look at their lives. And the reason why God tells us their strengths and their weaknesses is so that we can kind of analyze and break down and critique. And, and, and as long as that, that analyzing and critiquing, it, it applies to our lives. This is how Isaac did. And Isaac is there in heaven, more joyous than anything to be able to have his life, good or bad, be used as an example to help us. And so as we look at Isaac's life, we, we need to make sure that these things, um, again, you know, that, that it's not talking bad and, 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 you know, these things, but it's recording it, but with the purpose of um, our lives changing. Who was it last week we were on? I was on somebody, maybe Esau. I think I lit him up pretty good. I told Lydia after church, you know, I think Esau's in heaven. <laughs> is he going to be all right? I think he is in heaven. When to get there. But um, so... With Isaac, the cool thing about Isaac right here is he just tells the truth. He just just admits what the issue is. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't lie. He doesn't make up a story. He's honest. He's he's humble. And and he says, I I said she was my sister because I didn't want to die. I I was afraid that, that you guys would kill me because she's beautiful. And that you would kill me so that you could take her. And I lied because I didn't want to do it. He fesses up immediately. It seems to be something, you know, with Isaac that's pretty consistent all the way through. He's meek. He's honest. And um, he doesn't seem to be quite like that roaring, road raging, like, you know, Peter type. He's, he's very introverted and, and, and humble. And here he's just honest and, and tells tells because I didn't want to die. Little side note. Men, what does the New Testament tell us we should do for our wives? Lay your life down. Somebody knows. The rest of you men, I'm going to pray for your marriages. (laughs) Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We're to lay our lives down literally, physically for our wives to, to be, you know, to die for our wives. That's the New Testament. Die to ourselves for our wives is a New Testament call. And so here Isaac's like, nope, not going to do it. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought this guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people saying, who, he who touches this man or his wife will surely be put to death. And so um, we have here another um, situation, another case of 
somebody in the world who is rebuking a Christian. Now, Abimelech is a, he's a worldly king. He's a worldly ruler. And he's right. And the, you know, the guy who represents God is wrong and he's lying. And he's, he's put this, this, this trip and this heavy case upon you know, Abimelech and his people. And the, you know, the pagan king has to come to, to the man of God and rebuke him. And it's never a good thing. It's never a good thing, right, when the world has to rebuke us and they're right and we're wrong for what we've done. If that does happen, when that happens, I pray that we, we go down the road of repenting, of, of, of changing, of not, you know, making it worse and putting out our chest and making excuses. Just, hey, we failed. We're wrong. We're sorry. Let's do it better next time. You know, we have the same um, illustration as given to us really um, the, the big one in the Bible is when David sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan came to David. And you guys know the story, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. And, and King David had taken Bathsheba, his, his, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, while Uriah, who was a, a well-respected um, person in his army, was fighting for King David. And King David took his wife, got her pregnant. He brought, he brought Uriah back from the battlefield so that he would go and lay with, your, with Bathsheba, thinking that it would cover up the fact that she got pregnant and that the baby, they would just have the baby. It would, Uriah would think it was his. And, you know, all of a sudden, hopefully they were the same color individual so that the baby didn't come out a different color. Uriah would have been like, what? <laughs> That's not mine. But David was hoping that, that that was his, you know, that that's the way it would happen. Sends Uriah home. Uriah goes and sleeps on the doorpost of his house. David brings him back. He says, why did you not go into your wife? And Uriah says, how could I go in and, and, and lay with my wife and, and have pleasure when my men are in trenches fighting? And so King David gets him drunk. And he thinks, okay, now he'll go home. He's drunk. His inhibitions are down. Sends Uriah home the second night. Uriah stumbling drunk lands on his porch and goes to sleep, doesn't go into his wife. And, and Uriah, drunk, was more noble than King David in this situation. And so then uh, King David writes a note, and basically it's an execution note, seals it with a king's seal, hands his own death certificate to Uriah to go and give it to the general. And Uriah, being the good soldier he was, of course, didn't open it or even look into it, gave it to the general. The general opened it, and there was instructions from David to put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle and then pull back so that he would be killed. And that's what happened. And then um, David took Bathsheba into his house to be his wife. And the baby that she was pregnant with died um, at birth. And then, but what's interesting is that the, the next baby that Uriah had, or that, that Bathsheba has, is the next king of Israel, and, and the one who authored books in the Bible, and that God did forgive, and, and Bathsheba is the mother of King Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, and is a, is a key figure in the Bible, that, that even after the first son died, God still um, uses Bathsheba, but all that to, to give you the background of what happens, right? Nathan comes in and Nathan tells King David this amazing story. And he says, King David, there's a man in your kingdom and, and he has one little ewe lamb. And he loves this lamb so much, he sleeps with it in his own bed at night. He feeds it from his own table. He loves it. And next door to him is a very wealthy man who has tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of sheep and, and the wealthy man had some, some visitors come to his house to visit. And, and, and instead of going his own flock in his abundance and take one of his own ewe lambs, he went next door and took this man's one little ewe lamb. 
<laughs> Enough of that. And, um, and he killed it and served it to his dinner guests. And King David got so indignant. He got so angry. He said, who is this man? Whoever this man is, surely he will die today. And then Nathan looked at King David and he said, David, you the man now, dog. You are the man. That's where we get that phrase from in our slang today. You the man. It's not a good thing. David, you are the man. And in that, David began to repent. And then, but Nathan went on and admonished David and he said this. He said, because of what you've done, you've given the enemies of God an occasion by which to blaspheme God. And that, that's, that's part of what broke God's heart. And that's part of what breaks God's heart when we as Christians, we, we behave a certain way in the world that we're wrong and we're sinning. And it's, it's called your testimony. It's part of your testimony. And don't lose your testimony because it gives occasion for the enemies of Christ to blaspheme. And it happens all the time. Every time a pastor falls, every time a, a pastor who's a leader of, of large people, he's got a, a TV and an internet presence and he's, you know, people all over the world are sending him their money and then, and then it shows up a week later, he's in a jacuzzi with two women that are not his wife and they're all naked. Or he's in a hotel with a prostitute. These are both true stories. I mean, it, it gives the, the, the enemies of God an occasion to blaspheme. Now, does that change who God is? Does that mean you get to stand before God someday and say, well, that pastor, he was a liar and he was taking money and in jacuzzi with girls that weren't his wife. He's a hypocrite. And that's why I didn't go to church. And that's why I didn't serve you. Is that, is that argument going to stand on the day that, that you're judged for your sins, that you're judged for what you did and didn't do? Are you going to bring that, what somebody else did before God as an excuse why you didn't go to church, why you didn't serve God, why you didn't believe in him, why you didn't read the word? Does that fly? It doesn't, right? It's not an excuse. You, it don't matter. You've got to get your eyes off of men and onto Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Jesus lived a sinless life for you. And though I am going to blow it one day, I, as your pastor, am going to let you down, I promise. Probably already have a ton of times, but there's nowhere else to go, so you keep coming. <laughs> it, it, it's going to happen, and I just, want to, I just want to warn you. When that happens... Don't, don't get your eyes off of Jesus because that doesn't change who Jesus is. That doesn't change what Jesus did for you. That doesn't change your relationship with Jesus. That doesn't change the, the accountability and the responsibility that you're going to face one day when you stand before Jesus. Serve Jesus. Don't serve the church. Don't serve me. Don't serve a, you know, serve Jesus and do it unto Jesus and serve Jesus. You know, one of the hearts that, that we have as a mission statement for our church is to know Jesus and to make him known. That's, that's a lot of what we do. The other one is to, is to make disciples. Jesus said very simply, right, in Matthew 28, Pope read the scripture today, go into all nations and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's a call of God on us. It's kind of our missional statement is that we're going to make disciples. We're to go out and repeat and make disciples that will go out and make disciples. And so everything that we do, you know, it's, it's geared toward toward making disciples and towards, towards knowing God and making him known. And so for the people that come to church here, you know, I often want to share with you that, that we all have to have that heart. 
You know, we all have to have the heart of, of reaching out and that it's, it's, it's church-wide and that it's very, it's, it's very important that you, as individuals who come to church, that you're friendly across the aisles, that you're reaching out beyond yourself and that we all have the same heart of, of the goal of what we're doing here. I'll tell you what my goal is, and this is the same goal that we have to have missionally as a church, that we all are here to win souls for Christ. Not only to win souls for Christ, because that's, that's a huge part of it, right? But then once those souls are won for Christ, raising them up, supporting them, discipling them, helping them, loving them. You know, I, I try to do my best to get around and greet everybody, you know, when you get here and give a hug and spend a few minutes with you. And some Wednesdays or Sundays, I'm going to spend a few more than others, depending on what the needs are. But I'm only one person. And as we grow, I, there's no way I can do that to everybody all the time, nor, you know, and it's important that we across the aisles, you greet, you meet, but it all starts with this. You have a heart that you understand what we're doing here, what you're doing here, what you're doing here. The reason why you're here is, is to serve Jesus and not doing it unto me, not doing it unto this church. Do you have a heart that wants to see lost people come to Christ? You know, it, sh- it really should change. You know, one t- sometimes when I, when I get a little upset with, with things happening here at church is when we lose focus of that. When we lose vision of what we're doing and we start becoming whiny about things that, you know, are required or things that we do here. And, you know, the, the, the point is we, we lose when we lose perspective, then other things become more important. And there 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 probably is. Unfortunately, you live in Tooele, but there, there's plenty of bless me churches out there where you go there and the heart of the, the majority of the people that come is bless me pastor. And there's some laser show and, and some feel good message. And, you know, as long as you're given and, and, and writing your check, everything's hunk dory. They're not going to offend you. They're not going to deal with sin in your life. And, you know, you come back each week and, you know, some feel good message, like do good for your own self. And, and, and this crazy type of talk, right? But that's, that's not our heart here. That's not our heart here. Our church, we could grow the church probably a little bigger, a little faster that way. But we're not going to make a difference in people's lives. And, and again, the point of this is that you guys have to um, come alongside and, and be on board with, with the vision of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeing people get saved. So, so what if we have somebody that's new that comes in and they may not know Jesus and you have to get up or you have to sit or you come in and someone's sitting where you always sit. You know, it's okay, right? Rub your ears, calm down. Is that person maybe going to sit in your chair that is blessed because you sat there the last service and they're going to receive Christ in their lives and their lives are going to get changed, then, then, then that's the heart. And I think if we have that heart, if we understand that heart, I think it helps us not get upset. You drop your child off in the nursery and, you know, you come back and, and, and their diaper didn't get changed. And maybe there was, it was a long time and you're wondering how long did they sit in that, you know, that, and you're a little upset and, you know, yeah, let's deal with it. Let's go talk to them. Let's find out what happened and why it happened and how it happened. And, and let's get it right next time. But, but again, let, let's have grace. Let's have a heart that's bigger than little problems that we run into as we come. You know, we get, we get, I get all the time about different functions. And believe me, I'd love to have, you know, a lot more than what we have in resources and things to meet your needs. But, but we're a pioneer work too, Right. And that's something that a heart that I've tried to share with you guys, too. And, I, you know, this is more of a Wednesday night discussion, right? Because you, you people that are here are the heart, the core of our church. You're the people that, that you know, that are, 
that are here and that are the main part that we're building around. And so, you know, it's a little more of a family discussion of, of those that, that want to be a part of what it is that God's doing here. And, um, you know, we can speak a little more frankly with about, about that stepping out, becoming a disciple, making disciples. And ultimately, it's us having a heart that, that, that serves Jesus. And all this was about, started with this. I don't want to lose perspective of what we're talking about. It's not about me. It's not about the individuals, the pastors, the people who, who are human are going to fall and going to make mistakes because we are. It's about um, Jesus, doing it unto Jesus. And it's hard, I understand. It's hard sometimes to, to get your eyes off of the people that are around you. And, you know, and, and the thing that goes with this conversation is just the truth, that, that this is not the only church. There, there are other good churches in our community. There's pastors that I'm personal friends with in our community. And if, if God calls you to go there and serve there and plug in and plant roots and be a blessing there, I will not. When I see you in Walmart, I will love you and encourage you and be happy that you're over there. If you're there and you're serving and that's where God's called you and planted roots. And if you want to come back, come back and enjoy it. And, and, and just here's, here's the bottom line. Don't be more of a blessing gone than you were while you were here. If you leave, and in the back of my mind I say, well, they were a lot of trouble, and it's probably more of a blessing that they're gone. You don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person anyways. You know, if you leave, I want to be like, ouch, man, we really, that's a bummer. You know, that person was a real blessing, and they served. They served the body here. They helped. They were a big part of what we're doing. And and so, you know, but again, I understand that that, that there's, at different seasons, and this is what we're going to get to if I ever shut up, we're going we're gonna to get to it here in the, in the end of this chapter, that there, there, are, there are seasons and there's places of moving and going, and it's not all bad. You know, Paul and Silas had a really ugly dispute, and, and they decided, hey, you, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. I'm not going to do ministry with you anymore. And they kind of had this little split where the two of them went their way, but, but the work multiplied. And Paul, you know, his work multiplied and Silas's work multiplied. And in that, even though they split ways, they both were serving God and growing. And God did works on, on both of them that probably wouldn't have happened if they stayed together. And so, all right, let's get to the end of this so we can talk about a couple other things. Twelve. Then Isaac sowed in the land and replaced in the same year, a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. So a hundredfold blessing in Isaac's life. You know, that's the goal, um, right? Jesus said that, that, you know, some 30, some 60, some a hundredfold. And, and that, that's always the goal. Not, not a lesson on, on reaping and sowing right now, but definitely that, that there's a blessing for you. And I always want the hundredfold blessing. The, really quickly, I'll just comment on that, that scripture in the New Testament when Jesus said some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. I used to ask myself, blessing from God, why, how is it? Is, does God arbitrarily decide who gets 30, who gets 60, who gets 100? And, and I really feel like God spoke to me one time that, that we decide, you decide. You decide how much of that 30, 60, or 100 you want. It's the same idea, the same principle when Jesus said, or when James says in the New Testament, if you, it, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There, there's, there's a meeting in the middle that, that God does and, and God allows us, you know, as much, as close to him as you want to be in your life, you have access. The Pope don't have more access than you. He's got a cooler hat, but he don't have more access to God than you do, nor does anybody. You know, really quickly, um, 
12 disciples while Judas is still hanging around. There was one of them that Jesus called the beloved disciple, that he loved more than the others, in other words. How unfair. Would Jesus loved him more than the others? Yes, that's what the Bible says. He was a beloved disciple. At the Last Supper, who was the guy laying on Jesus' bosom who was just there next to him? It was John, the beloved disciple, the apostle of love. He did have a little kind of inner circle thing going on with Jesus. And it wasn't that Jesus arbitrarily picked John out of the crowd and said, man, I like that guy's mustache. He's, he's, he's with me. It, it was John in his heart fell so in love with Jesus that his devotion, his time, his, his energy, his heart was, was so sold out and so connected to Jesus and wanted to that John was constantly drawing near to Jesus. And all that Jesus was doing was responding to those that were responding to him. And, and, and just like any of us would do, when, when, when John took a special interest and, and, and always wanted to be a little closer to Jesus and everybody else, Jesus met him where he was. And that's what James tells us. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so this same idea of, of 30, 60, 100 fold fruit in your life, you have opportunity as you draw near to God. He's going to meet you where you are. In verse 13, it says, the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he came very prosperous for he had possessions of flocks, possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up the wells, which his father servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, and they had filled them with dirt. So they filled the wells with, with, with dirt. What a bunch of schmucks. And, and you remember, we studied, we, we got through the story of um, Abraham digging wells. And he had with the last Abimelech, he had this issue where Abraham confronted him, right? They had these wells and Abimelech's men came and were, were kind of took possession of the well. And rather than Abraham, after the whole thing was over, Abraham just didn't leave. He said, oh yeah, by the way, let's talk about those wells that I dug. Those are my wells. I dug them. And then they make this pact. And then Abraham pays him. And we, we made a lesson out of Abraham paying him as a, as a covenant for those wells as a sign to prove that they were his. And then, you know, this is, this is 75 years later. Now, they've, the, you know, different king, a, a rose of Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And they, they, they filled these wells up with uh, with dirt and, and Isaac is, is now contending with the same issue his father was, but Isaac is going to deal with it differently. And it says, um, 16 and Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us. You are much mightier than we. And then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent from the Valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the well of water, which he had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had also called them. And Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. And the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdmen, saying, That water is ours. So he called the name of well Essek, because they quarreled with him. And then they dug another well and quarreled over that one also. And so Isaac called its name Sinta. What does it say in your margin there? You have a margin there? Oath of seven, literally well of the oath or well of the seven. And they moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called the name Rehoboth because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. And so he calls the well Strife or trouble, the first two. And so they came and they, they quarreled over these, um, these wells that Isaac was building. And, and, and unlike his father battling for them, Isaac is very meek. And so they come and they're like, hey, that's our well. And Isaac's like, 
okay, you can have it. Just let me name it first. You know, and he gives it this name like defeated. And then he comes to the next one, strife. And then he, and you know, and they're like, hey, that's our well. And like, okay, you can have that one too. Just let me name it also. You know, so you see this different character in Isaac, this different trait in Isaac that you didn't see in his father, where Abraham was the type that was going to confront them and deal with it and yet to make it right and pay them for it. But Isaac is just, he's a different individual and that's okay, right? We have, we have different personalities. We have different issues. You know, one of the, the areas of, you know, questions we get, we had a good question when dad was here um, in the Q and a time about different people that are right on Christians, but have different philosophies, different styles. And, you know, the reality is if you took the 12 apostles, which happened really, and, and you spread them out and they all started their own church, each church is going to function a little bit different because of the, the pastor or the leader of that church is kind of leaning his tendencies, his, his ideas. And each one may, the doctrine's going to be the same. The main thing's going to be the main thing, but you are going to get some different styles of ministry. And so with the characters of the Bible, we have, we have not, not wrong. Abraham's style wasn't right. And Isaac's wrong, but Isaac was just meek. One of the good things is Jesus said, blessed are the meek in the, in the new Testament, right? And so it's a good quality. It's a good quality of humility. He just would rather run and go dig another well somewhere else. Amen. All right, let's stand. We're going to leave this for next week because we are. Let's stand and let's pray. Mike and Rebecca will be up front if anybody would like uh, individual prayer today. So Lydia's not here, so I'm going to have Mike and Rebecca come up and pray for you guys. And um, yeah, let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the lessons of Isaac and how Isaac was honest and yet Isaac was meek. And, and Isaac just left these wells and, and went and dug another one in a different place. And, and yet you blessed him. You blessed him a hundredfold. And, and even though the enemies of God, they, they had occasion to blaspheme when Isaac lied, they also saw the blessing of Isaac as, as you multiplied him and, and as you blessed him a hundredfold. And so, God, I pray that the world would, Lord, know that, that we're not perfect. And that yet when we make mistakes, that uh, we would repent and I pray, Lord, for all of our lives that we would not give the enemies of God an occasion to blaspheme. And yet we would, they would just see fruit a hundredfold in our lives, God. And, Father, that, that we would have a light that would shine on a hill that would be bright. That when, when they see it, they would glorify our Father who is in heaven. And, Lord, we thank you for the lessons of Isaac and Abraham and, and soon Jacob. In Jesus' name, amen.